This is Preachers on Preaching, frank conversations between two preachers, brought to you by the Christian Century Magazine. And now here is your host, Matt Fitzgerald. The Reverend Marlon Lavenhar is one of the most requested guests that we've had on the program. He's the senior minister of All Souls Unitarian Church in Tulsa, Oklahoma. He's the first Unitarian we've had on the program and uh, I was excited to speak with him before I'd even heard any of his sermons because I was excited to kind of trade thoughts with a Unitarian about what happens when preaching happens. Then I listened to a couple of Marlon's sermons, and they were so good. I encourage you to take a listen and to look at the All Souls website where you can find them. I was startled, actually, to hear him hewing so closely to the Christian narrative. But then other sermons of his talk about the way, the deep way in which atheists can be spiritual. So he's preaching from a Christian place, from a humanist place. It was intriguing for me to hear how he's able to do this balancing act. So here he is, Marlon Lavenhar. How'd you wind up in Tulsa? So I ended up in Tulsa. I was, um, I started up, when I was in seminary, I started an alternative worship program at the church that I was serving in Boston. And the church here heard about it, and they were looking for a new senior minister. And they said, you know what, why don't we grab a young person who is reaching out to young people and see if that can kind of take our church to a, a new level and reach out to Gen Xers and millennials and others. And so they called me up, and we started talking. I never thought they would choose me, but they did. So I ended up out here in the year 2000, 16 years ago. So is All Souls your first call? It is. And interesting, and it's uh, within the world of the Unitarian Universalist Association. It's a, a flagship church, right? Yeah, it is. It's been a, it's been one of our our largest churches for a long time. My predecessor, Dr. John Wolf, started us out on television. He was sort of competing with Oral Roberts a little bit, and got himself on television and really built himself an audience in the local market. Is it? A contradiction, or is it an unusual thing to be a Unitarian with an evangelical zeal in terms of bringing people in, church growth, trying to bring uh, your perspective into the lives of people? Is that, I mean, my stereotype would be of, of Unitarianism that um, there's a sort of like come as you are uh, approach. So it would almost seem a contradiction in terms to say, no, we've got something that you need and we want to bring to you or we want to bring you into it. Uh, is that wrong? Is, there, is, that a, is it unusual for you to be a, a Unitarian leader and also be a, a church growth person? You know, it, I think it's the confusion comes from the fact that Unitarians traditionally do not like proselytizing. They don't like people going out and berating other people that they don't believe right and they're wrong and that they need to come to uh, to the to the one truth. But evangelism, of course, comes from the root of uh, good, it being sharing the good news. And I certainly feel like Unitarian Universalism has a lot of good news for our times. And so to be able to go out there and share our good news, not to say that everybody needs to follow religion the way we do, but certainly to let people know that we exist and that this is a way to be religious in our world today that's highly relevant and deeply meaningful and healing and and so from that perspective, being an evangelical Unitarian Universalist is not 
a uh, contradiction. Do you find it easier to have that approach in Oklahoma as opposed to Massachusetts, just because Oklahoma in general is, again, going to be more amenable, more open to faith in, a big, in the big picture? I mean, it's a much less secular part of the country than Boston is. Right. Yeah, it's definitely easier to be an evangelical Unitarian Universalist here in the Bible Belt, where going to church is something that most people do, and it's a part of the culture. So for those who have a more progressive, more eclectic religious perspective, they're looking for a place, they're looking for a community to raise their children with religious values. So for us to let people know we exist uh, does draw people in. And it's not out of the norm culturally in Tulsa. Did What's it like to be a progressive Unitarian in the Bible Belt? I'll tell you, it's a lot. It's a lot of fun because when I say things here that people might fall asleep listening to in Boston or the East Coast or other parts of the country, here people say, "I can't believe somebody's actually saying that out loud, challenging that perspective or that doctrine." And so here, people take religion really seriously, and the people who dominate the airwaves on, in religion here are very, very exclusive. Tend to be exclusive and very conservative. So to come out and bring a voice that's different, really has some interest. So things that might, again, be sort of the norm or even passe, uh, or I don't know, cliche is probably the wrong word, but, but a critique of religion or uh, an, a, a broad-based acceptance that, again, in Massachusetts and in, in sort of big, supposedly sophisticated cities is going to be something folks have already heard can be provocative where you are. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Because if I, I mean, if I preach about the fact that that hell, that people going to hell is a a, a, a ridiculous doctrine, or to say that it's an insult to God to say that God's going to send people to burn in hell, uh, in in most parts of the East Coast, particularly among mainline churches and uh, Protestant churches and other progressives, it's not a big deal. Nobody's really arguing that much about hell in most of mainline Christianity, but here. In Tulsa, that's a big issue still, and kids kids get witnessed to on the playground at age five and six from other children telling them that they're going to be going to hell if they're not saved. Wild. So in that regard, coming from your perspective, Tulsa must feel like quite the wide-open mission field. It sure is. So the folks who wind up at All Souls, are they, are they is it a mixture of like lifelong Unitarians and folks who are consciously leaving other traditions or does it weigh more heavily in one direction or the other like all of our churches really across the country we get a lot of people who are come outers of other churches and more and more we're getting folks who are unchurched who are coming and looking for some kind of spirituality but they don't want a dogmatic spirituality so they they come because they hear that we're open to other faith traditions and allowing people to explore and ask questions what's your dialogue with other faith leaders in Tulsa like? Are you, I mean, are you simultaneously in conversation, I would imagine, with uh, non-Christian religions, but are you also in dialogue with conservative Protestants down there? Very much so. And that's that's one of the nice things. This Because our congregation is, is large, almost 2,000 members, we, and has been in this community for a long time and on television for years in the 90s, we have a, a sort of a high profile. And so the other uh, churches take us seriously when an issue comes up in a community or nationally, the newspapers and the media come and they interview me at, or some, one of the ministers on our staff to get a perspective from us. So 
to 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 balance out whatever article that they're doing or whatever piece they're doing. So we end up being being a part of the conversation quite widely and being invited to forums and and the other preachers have to take us seriously because we're out there in the public sphere very very um, broadly. How about uh the changes that have taken place at All Souls since you've been there, the church is multicultural. You have a, a, a significant um, proportion of African-Americans in the congregation. Uh, I tend to think of Unitarianism as being a fairly white tradition mm-hmm. um, coming out of you know New England congregationalism way back when. Uh, how, was that an intentional move you made to try to make the church more diverse, or, or was it something that the sort of spirit allowed to happen? What's that story? You know, it's something that Unitarian Universalists across the country really want to become more diverse, racially, culturally diverse, socioeconomically. But it is always a challenge for any church, I think, to, to sort of shift its cultural demographics. And and it's so tied up in so many different things that are happening. We've, we, we had the goal of doing that, and we've worked alongside partners in the, in the black community and the Hispanic community for years. But when the opportunity came, when Bishop Carlton Pearson who was a, a minister leading a megachurch here in the community for 25 years. He was the right-hand uh, person with Oral Roberts for a long time, traveling around the world. He had a thriving church, but when he came out as a universalist saying that God is not going to send people to hell, not gay people, not Jews, not Muslims, not Buddhists and others, uh, he he lost his megachurch. He basically lost his building, his television show, a lot of his staff, walked away, and he ended up with a congregation of a few hundred people who stuck with him. It was predominantly African-American, but not completely, and they, he, he and I struck up a friendship because he didn't really know that there was something called universalism that existed in America, and he was, and certainly not in Tulsa, and so we got to know each other, and he ended up saying, hey, what if I came and, and brought my church into your church, and we started to work together. And when that happened, a lot of things changed. Because oh, that's interesting. Sudden, so it wasn't a sort of gradual, uh, I don't know, integration. It was rather a merger in some senses. It was. It was much more like a merger, not not like a business merger where we merged all kinds of property and things. But it was, it was a coming together that happened practically overnight. And it was it was an exciting time. But here you you had. A congregation that for almost 90 years had been predominantly white and fairly affluent and and quite stayed in its worship style uh, and even so, somewhat skeptical of uh, well sort of very skeptical of evangelical Christianity and more emotive styles of liturgy and worship and all of a sudden into our congregation came a whole bunch of predominantly African-American Pentecostal charismatic folks who were very Christian identified, but universalist theologically. How did that go over? You know, at first there was that bump of excitement and everyone said, wow, this is really wonderful and exciting. And it really tested whether we really could be a congregation that was rooted in a covenant rather than a creed. Because if you, if you know the basics of Unitarian Universalism, we're not bound together as a community by a creed or a right belief, but by a covenant which which is a way of promising to be together in community. And so the idea is that people can come with lots of different beliefs into our church as long as they agree to the covenant. So this pushed 
that whole concept of a covenantal church to a whole new level. We've been saying for decades that we're a covenantal church and people can come with lots of different beliefs, and people did with Buddhist beliefs and agnostic beliefs and all kinds of different philosophies that folks came in to our congregation. But when folks came with a very high theistic Christian uh, theology, that all of a sudden bumped up against some prejudices that folks had that really tested whether this covenant idea was true. So all of a sudden we had people raising their hands in worship, praising God, singing, you know, unabashedly love and and thanks and praise to God. And folks were saying, wait a minute, I left the churches in order to come to All Souls and a Unitarian Universalist church to get away from that. And now it's coming under our church, here into our church. And what I, what, what people became clear about over time was, Yes, the style of worship and the liturgy had come, but not the dogma, not the exclusivism, not the things they actually fled. Because what they were fleeing was not necessarily people raising their hands and singing boldly and in an embodied way in worship. What they were fleeing were ideas that tended to be sometimes homophobic or felt misogynist or in other ways exclusive of other faith claims. Did, did this go both ways? Were the, were the Pentecostals who were suddenly Unitarian Universalists um, I would imagine, I mean, the folks, the remnant of that congregation, of, of, of Bishop Pierce's congregation, um, you know, if, I mean, usually when that kind of thing happens, there's loyalty to the pastor, right? There's, uh, and there's got to be some kind of doctrinal alignment with whatever's causing the schism, but not necessarily all the way down the line, right? Um, so was it hard for folks came into the congregation? Like, did they show up with their Bible in their hand and then realize that wasn't the cultural norm in this new place they were? What was that like from that from that end of it? You know, one of the funniest things that, that happened was that I saw, so I would preach the same, so we created two different services with two different liturgical and musical foundations, and but I would preach the same sermon every Sunday. And I used the Bible in most of my preaching, because that was the one thing that linked the two communities, even though I didn't previously preach from the Bible every Sunday before this merger happened, I started to because that was one thing that linked the two communities, so I could preach the same sermon, and everyone could realize that our theology was the same, even if our worship style was different. But what would happen inevitably after over a while, over time was that folks would come out of what we call our traditional Unitarian Universalist service, and they would say, all we hear about is, is Jesus in the Bible anymore in this church. And folks would come out of what we call our contemporary, more Pentecostal-style service, and they would say, you know, the problem with this church is we never hear about Jesus or the Bible anymore. It's the same <laughs> sermon. Isn't that funny? So how did you, solve, how'd you uh, crack that nut? So what we so over time what we realized was that we were trying to create a sort of one size fits all preaching uh, and and sermon uh, moment in in our services and what we realized was that's not what we needed to do in order to create the kind of pluralistic religiously pluralistic culturally pluralistic and generationally pluralistic community that we were creating we needed to have worship services that that had some distinct theological. Um, approaches. And so we currently now on Sunday morning have three worship services every Sunday. One of them is our traditional, what, what would be considered a traditional Unitarian Universalist service, very eclectic, theologically bringing in lots of different ideas from different faiths and cultures and science and philosophy. Then we have this 
contemporary service, which is is unabashedly theistic and Christian in its theology. And then we have we've started a humanist service, which is which is theologically humanist and has its own sort of liturgical form to it. And so on Sunday morning, we have three different worshiping communities that are attracted either to a style of worship or to a particular theology. And it's created a great deal of life and conversation and intellectual dialogue. And then what we realized was worship is only one hour a week, but where, where the congregation comes together is throughout the entire week in classes and in committee work and in our justice work out in the community. Have those three services broken down along racial lines or are they integrated between, across them? There, what we did, what we have found is that the service that is our what we call our contemporary service does have the most racial diversity by far compared to the other two services. But what we have found is that all of the services now have racial diversity to some degree, which before we didn't have any in our, our traditional service. As a preacher, I imagine then, you're probably not preaching all three of those services on a given Sunday, right? The same sermon isn't going to cut it, as you just said. So are you are you writing three different sermons every week, or are you does the load get get dispersed across the pastoral staff? I, I try at first the first year I tried to preach all three and it was it was too much work to take a sermon and adapt it into three different theological languages every week. I just wasn't able to do it at, at a high quality. So we started to break it up. But what I do I still preach the same sermon in all three services during the course of the month and I and I adapt the sermon to the theological language of the of the community. So it's a great challenge. It keeps me interested and engaged because if I'm preaching on forgiveness, I, I can do a, a, a sermon using a biblical examples, and then, I, and then I come over and I try to look for uh, examples that are beyond just Christianity, and then I come into the humanist service, and I'm looking for a way to help people understand the power and the importance of forgiveness without using any scriptural or religious references. Does that causing you any sort of, I don't know, sort of theological schizophrenia, split personality? I mean, that sounds like a very hard, uh, to, from my perspective anyhow, hard to, to, to leap from world to world, from language to language, while holding on to uh, your own sort of core convictions. Is that difficult or is it? It, it is challenging at times to... to um, to go in and take a sermon that I feel like really uh, comes together and uses the metaphors and the scriptural references and things that have most power for me, and I really pull it together and it comes together, and then to have to to rewrite it for another service where I have to take out some of the things that for me are ver- speak very powerfully into my life, and then I take it out because I know that that's not going to be persuasive or effective for the for a, the particular service that I'm preaching it to, that can be sometimes that that certainly can be personally challenging. But the what makes it gratifying is recognizing how many people's lives are being touched and transformed by the core message. Because whether you're whether you're humanist or Christian or or somewhere in between, you still have 
to grapple with issues of forgiveness and redemption and sinfulness and evil and grace and death and all the same issues. And so, as a, again, coming from a, from, I mean, you are a Unitarian, obviously. So being deeply rooted in that perspective, the assumption you're bringing is that those themes somehow transcend the particularities of the different, of their different expressions. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So, so Unitarian Universalism has always been focused more on ethics than on beliefs, right? That's how we've created this covenantal idea where people can come with different beliefs and be part of the same church. So we're, we're more concerned of how, what do you do rather than what you say you believe. Mm. And so the, the slogan of our church is love beyond belief. So our focus is on that, that core, powerful, transforming love that is that is larger than any one belief system and that that hopefully in some ways all different belief systems are trying to point us towards that that powerful love that calls us to justice and calls us to compassion so when you preach what from a unitarian perspective or just from your unitarian perspective what do you think is happening i want to i want to kind of ground that question in this thought from carl bart um so bart says that preaching is human speech in and by which God himself speaks like a king through the mouth of his herald, and which is meant to be heard and accepted as speech in and by which God himself speaks. Um, you know, Bonhoeffer picks that up and says, where, where Christ is rightly spoken, Christ is present. Um, there's the hope, the assumption that preaching from Scripture is somehow allowing God to speak uh, to a congregation through, again, through the act of proclamation. Um, doesn't always happen, but right. there's the possibility. That's not how you understand preaching to function, I don't think, right? Right. I mean, it, it depends. So, so as the scripture says, God is love, love is God, that, that from, from my perspective, we're trying to move people towards a life that is more deeply rooted in love, their, the sense of their own lovability and their ability to love others and love the world. Of course, love manifests as justice, love manifests as compassion and in many different ways. So, so my role in this church that's focused on this idea of love beyond belief, I am looking for ways to help people align their lives more with that profound love that's at the center of what is what is good and hopeful about life and so each of the services it's really it's the same sermon in three different languages it's it's as if i'm translated into spanish and and french and english but it happens to be three different theological languages all trying to move people's lives towards a fundamental sense of the transforming power of love and how important it is to be an embodiment of that love and to be an expression of that love as I listened to some of your sermons in preparation for our interview, um, I was almost confused because uh, I watched a, a sermon, listened to a sermon, which was wonderful. You're a great preacher. Uh, uh, that you were preaching after the latest police shooting of a black man, the one that took place mm-hmm. in Tulsa, um, a sermon called Rise Up. And it followed a Christian narrative very, very closely. Um, and then I listened to another sermon uh, on the topic of spiritual atheism, how atheists can in fact be spiritual, right? And mm-hmm. and and I kind of found myself like these. It's not like you are contradicting yourself, but they're coming from very different places. So I'm starting to understand that now. I assume I'm. Li- I was probably listening to sermons from two of the different services, right? 
Right. Um, that's really interesting. And yet in your congregation, because you're not uh, attracting or espousing uh, any kind of dogmatic limitation, people are able to be in community, in covenant with folks that they know don't believe the same way, right? Right. So, I mean, just imagine how how cool this is that you have people who are who are agnostics who are coming to one of our services and another who are absolutely committed uh, Christian theists in another in another service. And then out in the world, they might completely disrespect each other, not understand each other, not even want to be in relationship with one another. But then on you know, on Saturday, they're working to build a home together and they're learning about each other's lives and they're having lunch together and they're doing these different things. And they realize, you know what, this guy's not such a bad guy. You know, he might be an atheist or an agnostic, but boy, he loves his children and he's a he's a fair person and a good businessman. And, and I can really respect him and his approach to life and vice versa, that atheist who would have maybe considered the other person's religiosity some kind of a, a of a crutch or just not understanding it, thinking it's foolish realizing, wow, this person is very bright, very thoughtful, and his his religious approach seems to work well for him, and he's a great person. And so there's this bridging happening between people who out in society tend to be separated, and it, it can happen within the life of a church that allows for those expressions to be fully, fully realized. One of the things I've learned over the course of these interviews and the course of my own ministry is just how wildly diverse, even divergent, um, regional expressions of faith are in the United States. It's, it's as if we're, you know, really multiple countries in that regard. Um, and what you're describing, again, I don't think it would be possible in Boston, right? Um, I don't think it would be possible uh, in Connecticut. It seems to me that you're having a, a, a particular and unique experience of the church that might only be possible in the Bible Belt. Does it does it feel that way to you? You know, I'm really I'm not sure if that's true or not. I like to think that it's larger than that. The the vision we have for our congregation is that we're trying to be within our walls a model or an example or an embodiment of the world that we hope will exist outside of our walls someday. So the idea that people from different religious perspectives can can worship and respect one another and work to create a better world out you know in the community and in all different ways by blending our lives together and supporting each other despite the fact that we have different ways of approaching religion, faith, love and and those things. I guess what I'm saying is not that people on the East Coast or elsewhere would be hostile to that idea by any stretch, but rather it rests on the um well, it what you're doing is predicated on the fact that religion in general is taken seriously. And right. I would worry that um you know that the sort of ever increasing marginalization of of Christianity, at least uh, the ever increasing secularity in our world, um, saps the vitality out of those things. So that the kind of relationships you're talking about between um, outside in the world, right, and the kind of like disarming of religious stereotyping, um, people of faith in and of themselves are, are it's a shrinking category, and so. 
what you're doing, it seems to me, rests again on or needs to be happening in a place where people are religious, right? And um, I, I don't know. I'm a little pessimistic about this these days. Um, yeah. That you'd be hard-pressed to find 2,000 people to form a community across religious difference in some parts of our country anyhow because you'd be hard to find 2,000 religious people. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I think that, you know, every community, which amazes me, even even in Boston, where I, I studied for years, you know, they have very strong evangelical churches and and very thriving, progressive UCC and Unitarian Universalist churches. So, I, you know, I think there are religious people everywhere and we're still one of the most religious countries, you know, anywhere in the United States, in, in the world. So I think that people want to be religious and I'm I'm wondering if in this day and age with the internet and travel and all the ways that people are beginning to share in one another's struggles and persecutions and and lives and understanding different cultures and religious perspectives like you know back in the day a preacher in rural Oklahoma or anywhere could preach about this exclusive faith claim that only God only spoke in this one language, only in this one culture at this one time, and it was documented in this one book, and that anyone else who believes anything else is is wrong and on the wrong course. But today, people people have the internet and they travel and they know people of other religions and faiths and they work with people of other faiths. So I think that there's actually a moment in the history of, of our country and and really in the world where people are actually curious about other faiths and they do want to know can we get along can we work together and live together and so i think the possibility for communities that are religiously pluralistic and culturally pluralistic are actually something that folks are hungry for right. if we could offer them in a compelling way so uh god is using the internet to bolster the unitarian universalist <laughs> association i love it um <laughs> Speaking of the internet, you've got a, a, a large, uh, I don't know what the right word is, following audience uh, for your worship services on YouTube. Um, you know, some of your sermons have you know thousands of views. Um, do you think about that when you're composing a sermon? Do you think, all right, this is not only going to be shared with uh, and in dialogue with my congregation, but there are a lot of people um, out there by themselves who are going to be receiving these words. Yeah, you know, I haven't quite figured out what to do with that. You know, we we have, like you said, thousands of views of our YouTube site and sermons, you know, each month. And we get letters. I get emails and things for, from people all over the world who are listening. And I, I still believe that that uh, even when I was given some media training about talking to the media, they said, try to imagine you're speaking to, to one person, not to the interviewer necessarily, but to one person who you think your message is most important to. And, and so I still preach to the congregation that I have and the people who I know and who I've been living with for 16 years, and I know their lives and their struggles, and they know mine. And, and so I still preach to them. And but it does seem that through that, it still has a resonance beyond our church. But there are moments on a political sermon, like when Jeremiah Wright was being uh, was being attacked during Obama's first election. And I preached a sermon on on why Jeremiah is right. And that one you know, went went viral around the country. And, it, and I was aware as I preached it that this had the potential to offer something to the larger dialogue that we were having as a society. Do you think that um, people who are hearing a sermon remotely 
Is there something inherently lesser about that experience as opposed to being, you know, sitting in a pew and, and being close to somebody, physically close to somebody who maybe you brought a casserole when they had cancer, maybe you taught their kid church school, maybe you don't know them, but you're watching them, you know, look bored or tear up or have their own reaction? Yeah, I, I absolutely think that watching a sermon on the Internet is has no comparison to actually being part of a living, thriving community where you share life and death and everyday struggles together with people. So there's no comparison, but it does at least reach out to folks and start connecting people. And I can imagine where communities, if, if communities of folks who are resonating with our message in different parts of the country or different parts of the world start to if we're able to link them together, they can start creating some communities around the the shared values and the shared ideas and culture and language that we're creating in worship. So I, I think there might be a way over time to to bridge those two ideas. That's really interesting, this metaphor of languages, because it's one that I've heard as a, a sort of primary critique of Unitarian Universalism. Um, I'm trying to understand for myself what I've carried around in my own brain or maybe even my own heart as a, a, um, a critique of Unitarianism or, or a misunderstanding of it, at least. So um, right. I want to try and push into that a little bit. Please. Um, I'm sure you know all this stuff, but uh, you know George Lindbeck has that, that famous book on the nature of doctrine in, mm-hmm. in which he says, you know, following Wittgenstein, he says that language creates experience, right? Like, mm-hmm. you know, when my children were little uh, and they'd, they'd go into a, a, a rage um, because they were hungry, perhaps, or, mm-hmm. or melancholy or who knows. They didn't know, right? All they knew was something was wrong. So it kind of expresses itself in this blunt way. As they learn language, then language refines their ability to experience their own emotion and they can distinguish between being bored or being melancholy or being angry right and then that can get expressed emotionally differently so language creates experience then Lindbeck says uh, different religions function like different languages and different religious languages for instance the language of Buddhism or the language of Christianity uh, create different religious experiences so then finally he goes on to say that um, one can no more be religious in general than one can speak language in general um, that religion is almost by definition a, a, a very particular endeavor. Um, so the notion of sort of getting outside of the specificity of a given religion is is kind of hopeless. You have to be in it in order to experience it. Um, I'm not saying that that's what I believe, but I mean that's the, I've 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 wrestled with that idea a lot myself. What I hear you saying is that. You, you're you're kind of moving between these different religions or different languages, right? Is that right? That's but right. That, in I mean, a way I, that you're kind of speaking a different dialect of the same universal language. Right. So so I I I was completely tracking with you, and I love what you were saying. And and the core of that is first the experience and the emotion, right? As you talked about a child. I mean, it goes back to Schleiermacher in the beginning of sort of liberal theology. And so what happens is we have this emotional experience and then we try to make sense of it and then that language shapes what we do with it so so from my standpoint you asked what's happening in worship i believe everybody's coming into worship with all kinds of in a different emotional state with some raw emotion it may be 
grief, it may be fear, it may be you know loss, excitement, anxiety, whatever that is, and that we're all in our individual emotional world, and we come into a worship experience, and if I'm able to to do that well, people feel connected. So uh, theologian uh, Tandeika talks about moving from raw emotion into religious emotion in worship. So meaning that we take those raw emotions, which feel so individual, and by the end we feel connected to something larger, and those emotions feel like a part of a larger story that our lives are, are in, and we no longer feel so alone in our sinfulness, in our struggles, in our, in our worries. I think one of the things that, that Lindbeck is trying to say in On the Nature of Doctrine is that we shouldn't assume that there really is any uh, religious experience or religious emotion prior to the formative power of learning how to speak a religious language. And that uh, a Christian's job is to learn how to speak the doc, learn how to speak Christianity, the Christian language, with as much eloquence as possible uh, so that um, he or she can speak about God coherently and, more importantly, so that he or she can hear God speaking with coherence. Um, so th- this means then that you have to really embrace and dive into the weird particularities of your given religion in order to have... Uh, a profound experience of God, and that those weird particularities will probably create for you uh, an understanding of God that is distinct from, if not at odds with, the understanding of God that somebody else in a different religion is having via the weird particularities of their religious language, so that my understanding of God as informed by a certain strain of Lutheran pietism and the doctrine of salvation by faith through grace is really going to be foundationally different from a Hindu understanding of God, right? And that that's unavoidable at some level, um, given the competing truth claims of different religions. And it's not to say that like Christianity is more true than Hinduism any more than English is more true than Spanish, but rather, I shouldn't try and speak them both at the same time. As a Unitarian, what do you think of that idea? You know, I think that the uh, that that I agree that language helps to shape our understanding of of who we are, our culture, and our experience. But the experience comes first, and so so the so we have an experience, we have an emotional response. There's a physical part first. So I, I sort of fall back again on Schleiermacher in this in this regard, and then language helps us to make meaning of it. So I'll give you a great example. We a lot of people who have come into our church since uh, New Dimensions and Bishop Carlton Pearson are Pentecostals. And so they have a, a core experience of speaking in tongues. And so they would have this experience of speaking in tongues and in, in worship, and then the preacher would have them sit down. This happens every, every Sunday in different parts of the country. And then the preacher in his sermon gives meaning to what they just experienced and tells them the reason that happened was because 
you know, Jesus died for your sins, and they go into a whole doctrine that, that may also be homophobic and misogynist and other kinds of, uh, of elements to a very exclusive, typically, uh, type of understanding. And so people say, well, you know what? I had an incredible experience. I know I spoke in tongues. I felt something very powerful. The preacher who I trust is telling me this is the meaning and this is why it happened, and I want to come back for more of that. And so they've got this formula that brings people back to have this incredibly embodied spiritual experience, but then they put a particular meaning on top of it. What we're trying to do in our congregation is give people a similar experience in our contemporary service, but instead of restricting the meaning to a particular set of doctrines, we're freeing them to begin to understand and find meaning of what happened, what that means, how that calls them to be a better person, but they, we give them a lot of resources in a lot of different languages, so they come to learn that in Africa, that, that there's African spirituality and Greek examples of glossolalia and other kinds of cultures that have made different meaning out of the same experience, so that their experience doesn't have to be equated with a very narrow doctrinal understanding. So you see how what you're what you what you're describing from Limbeck also works in a way of limiting people. I hear what you're saying exactly. I think you're right. It can be abused and twisted. Um, what you're saying then does does I mean part of what I hear you saying there, Marlon, is that the individual has her own or his own ability to sort this out, right? I mean, there's a sort of high theological anthropology in Unitarianism, I think, right? The sense of like original blessing rather than original sin. Right. Um, that's really interesting. How have you changed as a preacher um, needing to navigate these different, these different channels and venues and languages? I think one of the things, one of the things is that I, cause I started out as a completely as a manuscript preacher, which means that, you know, I'd come on Sunday and I'd be in send because I would have created something and then I would offer what I've created. You'd be in send. Is that what you in, said? In, yeah. Send rather than in receive. Mm. When, when you think, you remember phones used to have the send and receive buttons. Yeah. And so I, I would be in send because I had created something back in my office at home that then I was bringing to the people and it, it, it would be shaped by the moment and the music in, in different ways in terms of how I phrased it and my tone of voice and my emotional presence. But now I have much more, I've, I've learned to be in receive at the same time so that I'm paying much more attention to how is the congregation reacting and responding. And then there's a back and forth, a sending and receiving of, of information and uh, through, through our breath and our laughter and all these other things that then shapes what I offer in my sermon. Are you able to uh, move off a manuscript then and be, do you speak in an, like when, when the thing actually becomes dialogical, um, how do you, how do you send again without having composed your message beforehand? Yeah, so so that's what I've learned to get off to get off my manuscript, and even if I bring a manuscript to sort of be free with it, so that I can leave it and possibly come back, or leave it for good if if it seems like the uh, the the dialogue is what feels like a dialogue is taking it into a new direction. What the congregation seems to need or want, what's come alive for the church. Does that same method apply in in uh, your more liturgically stayed worship services? You know, it doesn't as much. I don't. I don't need to rely on that in the same way as I do in what what we call our contemporary service, which has a more of a charismatic feel to it. That service really requires me having both the send and the receive working really well, so that I'm really 
paying attention to the cues musically and otherwise. I mean, if if my musician starts playing the the Hammond B3 organ underneath me, uh, then I, I start picking up my pace and 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 I start leaving my manuscript because my manuscript can't keep me right surfing the wave of the music and the energy that he's creating with the with the organ. You must have. Did it feel to you as if you were taking a lot of risks as as this method started unfolding? Oh yeah, it was. It felt very. It felt very risky. I was so out of my comfort zone. But I, you know, I, I know in a lot of your different uh, discussions, you ask what keeps people alive in their preaching. Can you stay engaged and enthusiastic after years and decades of preaching? And what I find is that I'm I'm constantly being challenged and challenging myself. And so that certainly keeps me keeps it interesting. That's wonderful, and it's a great note to end on, Marlon. Uh... I can't thank you enough. I feel like I've learned per- personally an immense amount from this conversation and have a lot to, to digest and think about. And I'm really grateful to you, both for your fantastic ministry in Oklahoma. It sounds like miracles are unfolding, but also for your, your generosity in this conversation. Thank you, and thanks for, uh, thanks for facilitating this conversation nationwide of uh, preachers. Hearing, it's great to hear what other people are thinking and doing, and I've, I've learned a lot, so I appreciate that, and I hope you keep it going. Thank you for listening to the Christian Century's Preachers on Preaching podcast. This episode was edited by Neil Ellingson with technical assistance from Kyle Hoker and Elizabeth Palmer.